World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Korea, few hobbies are as common as hiking up the country's modest mountains. But the way of getting to the top isn't universally shared. Our correspondent compares the sprint and selfie approach with a more sedate summiting. And it's been a tough year even for Britain's royal family. One branch broke off to live in America. A popular Netflix series took a scathing view of its family values and plenty more. But make no mistake, through it all, it remains a beloved institution. First up, though. This weekend, in nursing homes in Germany and hospitals in Italy, the European Union began to inoculate its citizens against the coronavirus with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Although Europe took weeks longer than America or Britain to approve the vaccine, that hasn't stopped the bloc from calling its development a uniquely European story, created by a German company manufactured in Belgium. The vaccine is made available at the same time to all EU countries. And people will start taking the vaccine in Athens, in Rome, in Helsinki, in Sofia, you just name it. Despite the attempts to line up vaccine distribution across the continent, as with so many other European matters, the message of unity has stumbled upon meeting the reality of coordination. Well, this is really quite a remarkable project. Christopher Lockwood is The Economist's Europe editor. The EU is rolling out across its entire territory of 27 countries, 450 million people, a vaccination programme which has relied on it buying centrally up to 2 billion doses of various vaccines. And that is going to be distributed to every country in the EU. And then the countries themselves will do the actual vaccinations. And this central European approval for that came weeks after Britain's and and after America's. Why was that? Yes, that did actually cause a bit of consternation in, in various countries, particularly Germany, where the government was coming under quite a bit of pressure because the drug we're talking about, the BioNTech-Pfizer drug, was a European drug. It was manufactured in Belgium. It was invented by German scientists working for BioNTech. So very odd for them to see that happening first in Britain and America. That's simply because of the regulatory approval processes. The European Medicals Agency hadn't quite finished its testing. It wanted a bit more data. It wanted to study it a little bit longer. And so the vaccination has been approved by the bloc and will now be rolled out by the bloc in a unified effort? Yes. What happened is that the EU, via the European Commission, has set up a central purchasing arm, which has bought roughly 2 billion 
doses of vaccines from many different manufacturers. And one advantage of the system is that because of the enormous purchasing contracts, the price has sometimes been a bit lower than in other places. And having bought them, as they become delivered, they will be handed out to the European member states strictly in accordance with their population. And how about that sort of national level rollout? How, how is that progressing already? How do you see it progressing in the future? Well, the interesting thing will be only with the benefit of hindsight to see what the best way of doing this was. Every country is doing it in a slightly different way. So, for example, in Bulgaria, medical workers got it first. In Germany and Netherlands, the very old got it first. In the Czech Republic, the Prime Minister, Andrei Babish, got it first. Now, he is himself fairly old and, and somewhat overweight and probably did need to have the vaccine, but he clearly jumped the queue. On the other hand, you could argue in countries that are liable to be a bit suspicious of vaccines, it makes sense to have a high-profile vaccination of a, a public figure. Because there's a fair bit of vaccine scepticism around. There's a great deal of vaccine scepticism around. France, according to the polls, is one of the worst offenders here. And they routinely are. You know, I've seen numbers saying as high as 40% of French people say they don't want to have this vaccine. And so all of this discussion is predicated on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but others are in the pipeline. I mean, how do you see that playing into the dynamic here? Yes, and of course, the one that people are most interested in is the Oxford AstraZeneca one, because it's far cheaper than any of the others, typically costs about $2 rather than $20 a dose. But but perhaps even more important, it can be stored at normal temperatures. The Pfizer vaccine have to be kept at very cold temperatures indeed. So it means that vaccinations can really only take place in hospitals or well-equipped centres, and it's much harder to get it out into communities. There's a French one made by Sanofi, which I'm sure the French will be pushing very hard to, to get rolled out soon. There are other ones too, including some ones from China and Russia, which some countries in Europe are, are keen to take because they're cheap and because they may be available soon, but I don't think they will be very widely taken up. And on that matter of availability, how is that unified distribution effort playing out? EU solidarity over the purchase and distribution of these vaccines is a bit of an issue. The European Commission wanted this to be a great European project with everybody following the rules and the Commission doing all the buying and setting the prices and handing it out to everyone. And And I think they saw it, I'm afraid to say, as, as a sort of great sort of propaganda coup, if they could pull it off. And they more or less have pulled it off. But we've seen impatience in a number of countries, Germany in particular, also Hungary actually, and one or two others, they're worried that the EU hasn't bought enough of the first one that's available, that's the Pfizer vaccine, so they have bought their own supplies. Now this is very bad in a way. The whole reason why the EU went down this route in the first place was firstly, of course, to keep prices low, but also to make sure that you didn't get into a situation where every country was bidding against each other and buying much more than it needed. So there has unfortunately been a bit of that. But on the whole, the system seems to have worked pretty well. I think the biggest problems actually with these drugs are not going to be availability so much as ability to actually get the stuff out there. And, and with that in mind, then, do you think that this approach has increased European unity or, or just given more opportunity for divisions to arise? I think on the whole, it's been a plus for the EU sort of as a central organising principle. That that seems to be uh, very much the way they're seeing it in Brussels. They, they see this as a bit of a triumph that they got everyone more or less to the start line at more or less the same time. There's been a bit of cheating, but not too much. The interesting thing will now be 
do they use this as a way to build up further EU-wide healthcare competences? So will there be more of this coordinated drug buying? Will there be more of this planning for pandemic preparedness? And for instance, uh, declaring health emergencies on an EU rather than leaving it to the national government's basis. So yes, I mean, the bureaucrats in Brussels never miss an opportunity to build their empire. And you know, fair enough, that's the business that they're in. And I think that if this goes well, that will have helped that process along a bit. And I suppose in, in any case, getting these things out and to the people throughout Europe couldn't have come soon enough. We are really at a very, very bleak point in the evolution of the pandemic in this second or even third wave. We've had 350,000 people in the EU already dead. The the death rates in Germany are close to a, a thousand a day. You know, that said, the whole phenomenon of creating and manufacturing and distributing a vaccine in under a year is pretty remarkable. We shouldn't lose sight of that, but it's still been an awful, awful tragedy. Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. If I work in the morning, this South Korean bus driver says, I go hiking in the afternoon. If I work in the afternoon, I hike in the morning. His number nine bus is idling at the foot of the mountain he ascends every single day. For him, it's a matter of staying healthy, for himself, for his loved ones, for his colleagues. Hiking culture is huge in Korea. Almost a third of the country climbs at least one mountain a month. But not everyone does it in the same way, or for the same reasons. The way that people go up mountains in Korea sort of reflects the social pressures that people are under, but it also offers a reprieve from those pressures. Lena Shipper is The Economist's Korea's correspondent and is based in Seoul. The main thing that's special about South Korea is that it seems a lot more efficient and focused on speed compared with the sort of hiking that I was used to when I came here. A lot of people just run up the mountain and take a selfie of themselves next to the national flag that you frequently find at the top, and then they run down again. And so you've been doing some of the, the Korean version of hiking. I wanted to go and see what it felt like. The very speedy way to hike is to take a bus very early in the morning to one of the national parks, do your hike, and then take the bus back in the evening. We went on one of these internet forums that exist for that specific purpose, where people swap tips on hiking and on the best routes, and found a hiking club called Wanderung, which is the German word for hiking. And they organized a coach journey leaving from a subway station in southern Seoul very, very early one morning. We were quite unusual passengers because it was me and a colleague and a photographer. 
and we were quite young compared with the other passengers. They were all sort of your classic um, middle-aged Korean hiking group and their very professional gear. After a very long time, the bus stopped in this car park at the top of a pass where the pass started going up the mountain. And everybody just ran for the door, jogged towards the staircase that started the path up to the mountain. And the further up you get, the better the views get. So you start looking left and there are these enormous peaks. Um, and it was autumn when I went, so all the leaves were starting to turn. They were sort of going very bright orange and flaming red and rustling very pleasingly underfoot. And then there were clouds that kind of stuck very dramatically to the tops of the mountain. So you, you just get lost in that scenery and eventually you forgot that it was really steep and you were really exhausted and you didn't really want to be there in the first place and you woke up at five o'clock that morning. So it has this sort of soothing effect. You kind of vanish into this mountain world. So why is there this this deep subculture of hiking in Korea? Hiking is an incredibly popular thing to do in large part because going hiking is really easy. South Korean mountains are not particularly high. The tallest peak is just short of 2,000 meters, and they're everywhere. You know, unlike in Europe or America, few people live more than an hour or two from a mountain or a mountainous national park. Even in Seoul, half the population lives in the capital area, 25 million people. But even that contains several mountains that you can conquer during a long lunch break. There's one behind my house that I sometimes go up in the morning when I'm procrastinating. So it's just sort of ease and proximity then for a lot of Korean people. But I mean, how did it get started as that subculture? Hiking as a leisure activity is a pretty recent development in uh, Korea. The country got its national parks in a hurry. They started in the 60s, inspired by America's national parks and advised by American experts. By the end of the 80s, South Korea protected more than 6,000 square meters of its land area, which is around 6% of the entire country. And the hiking culture evolved alongside that. There are some people who say that it had something to do with the military dictatorship, because Pak Chung-hee, who was the strongman at the time, encouraged hiking as a sort of team-building activity, this idea of needing to win and needing to be the first, needing to get there, inspired by the 19th century races up places like Everest. And these people also tend to argue that that's not a very Korean way to conquer a mountain. They they say that the Korean way to do it is to go slowly and um, seek for harmony with nature and your surroundings. It sounds as if there's sort of two diverging almost philosophical views of this then, one of modernization and speed and winning and, and one of harmony with nature. It gets into notions of identity. Yeah, it's true that discussions about hiking in mountains can get quite philosophical and sort of spiritual and even nationalistic. I mean, lots of people tend to mention the founding myth of Korea. So Dangun, the mythical founder of both Koreas, is said to have been born on the slopes of Mount Pektu, which is a volcano on the border between China and what is today North Korea. He was allegedly the son of the sky god and a bear, who was turned into a woman after subsisting for months on garlic in a cave. And that mountain features in the national anthems of both North and South Korea, and it's a sort of very heavily nationalistically weighted symbol as the birthplace of the nation. They talk about the Pektu mountain range, which is the sort of range of mountains that snakes down from Mount Pektu along the entire peninsula. They call it the backbone of Korea. When you talk to some people, you get a very strong sense that mountains are just this very you know, heavy nationalistic symbol. It's very bound up with identity. 
But for some people, it's just a really nice reprieve from the daily pressures of work life, from the relentlessness and the competitiveness of the work culture and of social expectations. You just go up a mountain. The only thing I'm doing is focusing on that. I'm focusing on my steps. I'm looking at the sky. I'm taking in the view. And I don't need to think about anything else for a minute. It doesn't need to mean anything beyond that. Lena, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. In her traditional Christmas Day message, Britain's Queen Elizabeth II reflected on a challenging and traumatic 2020. Of course, for many, this time of year will be tinged with sadness. Some mourning the loss of those dear to them, and others missing friends and family members, distance for safety. When all they'd really want for Christmas is a simple hug or a squeeze of the hand. If you are among them, You are not alone. As with everyone else, the royals have felt the effects of the pandemic. The queen and her husband, Prince Philip, are in their 90s and have been shielding for much of the year, including spending Christmas alone at Windsor Castle for the first time in more than 30 years. Prince Charles and Prince William, respectively the first and second in line to the throne, had both tested positive this year for the virus. But 2020 has been difficult for the monarchy for other reasons. Harry and Meghan's split from the royal family was clearly very painful for all concerned. Emma Duncan is our Britain editor. It wasn't really expected to turn out like that by either side. Harry and Meghan wanted a semi-separate arrangement that would allow them to live in America and be somewhat working royals. But the Queen said, you're in or you're out. And they were out. And how's it played out for Harry and Meghan? So they've moved to the States and they've been living there ever since. We've heard a little bit about their life. I mean, very sadly, Meghan writing an op-ed in the New York Times about her grief over her miscarriage. And it's clearly proving quite difficult for Harry and Meghan to work out exactly what they are. They gave a video address urging American citizens to reject hate speech. As we approach this November, it's vital that we reject hate speech, misinformation and online negativity. Which presumably meant vote for Biden. And that is something that members of the royal family in Britain would not do. They do not get involved in politics. And the monarchy was already reeling from an interview with Prince Andrew at the end of last year regarding his relationship with the the paedophile Jeffrey Epstein. How has the monarchy dealt with that? Well, I mean, by pretty much writing him out of the script, they kind of had to. It was absolutely toe-curling. Am I right in thinking you threw a a birthday party um, for Epstein's girlfriend, Galen Maxwell, at Sandringham? No, it was a shooting weekend. A shooting weekend. Just a straightforward, straightforward shooting weekend. And this isn't going away because the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell means that People haven't forgotten that story. And all of that has left a really terrible smell in the air around Prince Andrew and therefore around the royal family as well. And certainly what's kept the royal family in the news as well this year is is The Crown on Netflix, in particular the, the most recent series dealing with, well, more recent history. How is that going down with the royals themselves? 
Well, not terribly well from what we can gather. You get a lot of quotes in the press from, in quotes, friends of the royal family, who may be friends, but they may also be employees of the royal family, who've made it clear that they regard the portrayal, particularly of Prince Charles in his behaviour towards Diana, as really unfair. Camilla is who I want. That is where my loyalties lie. That is who my priority is. Not the mother of your children. Don't bring the boys into this. And Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, says that he's demanding a health warning from Netflix to point out that this is a fiction and not a documentary. It seems to me odd that this is of interest to the government if they really think that an actor pretending to be Prince Charles saying mean things to an actor pretending to be Diana is going to damage this country's monarchy. Then, quite honestly, the institution has clearly outlived its usefulness. And looking ahead, how do you see 2021 playing out for the royal family? Next year is looking quite tricky for the royal family. There's an investigation going on into how the BBC got that famous interview with Princess Diana in which she talked about the breakdown of her marriage. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Now, the BBC may or may not come badly out of that, but all of this raking over the coals is not a happy business for Prince Charles. Meghan has a court case ongoing against the publisher of the Mail on Sunday and the Mail Online about some articles that they ran. Again, this just keeps the painful relationship between Harry and Meghan and the rest of the family in the air. So taking all of this in sum, do you think that the royal family as a, as a widely respected or at least universally tolerated institution is in real danger here of falling out of favour? Now, I don't think the royal family is going to fall out of favour. It's an extraordinarily popular institution. Now, that may be, to quite a large extent, because the Queen herself is so popular. And we have to remember, she's 94, so Charles will be taking over in the not-too-distant future. And he has made plenty of mistakes in the past, But if you watch how he behaves, I think he's learnt a lot. I think he's learnt a really important thing from his mother, which is the virtue of discretion. She knows how to keep her mouth shut, and he's learning how to keep his mouth shut. She has been a fantastically good monarch, but I think there's a good chance that he'll be a good one too. Emma, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.